as I sent it in the note that I sent out on uh, Wednesday, this is a, you know, sort of a, is a dark and fragile moment in our country and in our world. And uh, there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of ugly out there. There's a lot of darkness. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of anger. There's, there's terrorism. There's racism. There's just a lot of things that uh, we need to stand up and, and bring light and hope, right? Evil is real, but love is stronger, and we need to love. The church needs to be the church. This is, an, this is a time when that is particularly obvious. So we get called upon to love everyone always, right? I mean, that, that's, that's a mission that we are given by Jesus. He is our example in this. He is, uh, he is our teacher in this. So we're to love everyone always. So uh, it's good to be back. Uh, we didn't really go anywhere. Um, I had a few days uh, on the West Coast, and we went to Iowa uh, to see our uh, son and new daughter-in-law, but for the most part, it was around working on sermons for 2018 and exciting things like performance reviews and strategic planning budgets and other things like that. But uh, good to be back, and uh, I'm excited uh, to to have us think today about the church. So C.S. Lewis rather famously said that the way to defend the Bible is to treat it like a caged lion. How do you defend a caged lion? You open the cage, right? The lion can defend itself, thank you very much. Uh, So in a similar way, I've thought, you know, the way to defend the church is to just get the doors open and to let people get out and to love and to serve and to be the salt and light that we're called to be. The problem is, is that our, uh, our history is not quite uh, as tidy as we might like it to be. So uh, the church has a glorious and a troubled past. On the one hand, there are Christians who have, for 2,000 years, advocated and fought for the common good, have been on the forefront of promoting literacy and founding hospitals and shelters and orphanages and schools and and, and been involved in trying to love and care for the least and lost. And so when you, when you get on planes going to bad parts of the world, to dig wells in Africa, to, to stand up in, in civil war areas, to be involved in, in uh, clinics where epidemics are raging, uh, it is common that most of the people, not all, but most of the people are Christ followers. And they are there because they are trying to follow Jesus' example of loving and serving. And so there's a lot of things that are right about the church in the past. This, the last couple of weeks, because of what's been going on, I thought, I need, I need different voices. And so I, I have been listening to podcasts from critics of the church, from atheists, right? Some of the, some of the people that have sort of anti-Christian uh, podcasts. And I've been listening to these. And one of the surprising things has been, um, I, I feel like there's been a tone change in some settings. So a few years ago, I've mentioned this before, a few years ago, Nicholas Kristof, the, one of the foreign uh, policy correspondents for the New York Times, who's been very hostile to the church, said, you know, Christians, evangelicals are small-minded, easily led, you know, they're, they're not very educated. And then Kristof said, you know, I have to change my tone because when I am in a bad part of the world, I find that the people around me are all Christians. And he says, I don't think they're very bright. He's not a fan. But he said, but they love and they care and they serve indiscriminately, anybody that has need. 
And I, heard, I started hearing that on the podcast. So I was listening to um, Jonathan Haidt, who's a professor at NYU, and he's written some best-selling books. And Haidt said, you know, I used to be a new atheist. I used to be an angry atheist. I used to be against uh, religion. He says, then I did my research. And he says, I came away going, oh, my goodness. I can't do that. Because it is, it is Christians who are advocating on, in so many ways and serving in so many different arenas. And I heard that from another person who, who's an atheist, but he said, you know what, I've become a fan of the church. And so uh, there is, on the one hand, there's a lot of good things that the church has done and continues to do. On the other hand, there's the Crusades and the Inquisition, and there's, there's a failure for the, for the church, especially in the South, to stand up against slavery, and there's so uh, sexual scandals and, and the subsequent cover-ups. I mean, there have been so many times when the church seems to be following anybody other than Jesus. And, uh, and those that want to throw rocks at the church do not have to look around to find the rocks to throw. And uh, I, I hear uh, regularly in conversations, people will say things, you know, the church is dated, it's full of hypocrites, it's on the wrong side of history, it's part of the problem, the church is oppressive and misogynist, institutional faith is yesterday's story, on and on they go. Um, so I, I heard Richard Dawkins this week, he, he was um, not allowed to speak at Berkeley as was planned, he's a British academic and very vocal anti-Christian and he had said some things against Islam that uh, Berkeley had said, you know what, we're not going to let you speak. And so I went online to sort of hear what he was saying on the, on the talk shows as he talked about this. And he, he pointed out, he goes, I usually just criticize Christianity. I keep getting invited to universities when I do that, but I've criticized Islam and now I'm not invited to universities. So uh, he made one distinction, but then he said, but you know, religion, it's, it's all the same. Uh, religion... Uh, is what leads people to fly planes into buildings, and science leads um, science is is what leads us to fly rockets to the moon. Uh, okay, yeah, I've heard that before. It's clever, uh, but you know, two can play that game. So religion leads to Mother Teresa, and science leads to mustard gas. Right? I mean, if we're just going to come away and not listen to each other and have our little uh, have our little sound bites, we can play that game. I don't think that's the way forward. And uh, so in conversations, when people start to criticize the church, I usually go, hey, time out, Uh, preaching to the choir. I mean, if you think you know bad things about the church, I work at one. Uh, I I know a lot more bad things about the church than you do. And uh, I not only know where some of the bodies are buried, I I buried some of them. So trust me, uh, I want to raise my hand and say, I have not been who I'm supposed to be. I've not always done what I should do. I've done things I shouldn't do. I go, yes, the church has failed in so many ways. However, right, you got to look at the full story here. And there are so many things where the church has been a source of hope and encouragement and light. And uh, I, many of you may be familiar with the book Atlas Shrugged. Dine Rand wrote this book long book, thousand plus pages. I read it twice. Won't read it a third time, but I did read it twice. And in this book, uh, she sort of posits that the entrepreneurs, the business leaders all get fed up with the bureaucracy and government. And they go, I'm out. I'm done. And so they all sort of go to this little utopian hideaway and they just drop out of society. And then over the next, you know, 800 pages, you watch as society crashes with the entrepreneurs gone. 
So, uh, you know, she makes her point. I- I'd like someone to write, Jesus shrugged, right? What would society look like if the church went away, right? What would society look like if Christ's followers actually dropped out? Uh, I, I was, was around here most of the last few weeks, but I did go to the West Coast for a week. I went uh, to stay as a guest of a foundation. They, it's a it's a mostly a, uh, it's a billion-dollar foundation that gives mostly to science and technology. But they had given a little bit of money to me a couple years ago when I was doing research on the future before I wrote the book on the future. And they invited me out for a week to just sort of be part of, mix it up with their staff. And uh, it was very interesting to be there because they got the results back recently of a study that they had funded on homelessness. So... If you pay attention, you see widely varying numbers about how many homeless people there are in the United States. Right? Some say there's 10 or 15,000, and some say there's 4 million. Right? I mean, there's these huge discrepancies. So they had funded research to try and figure out what is a real number that, that we think is, is accurate. What they didn't expect, but what they were quite taken by, is this... The, the, the feedback that they got that about 70% of people that were homeless were being cared for by the church, by denominations, by uh, local churches, by Christians just bringing people into their home. And it was sort of shocking to them. But it's just another example of the church being the church, right? And, and nobody necessarily talks about this. As a matter of fact, uh, what we hear, the, 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 the general line out there is the church is declining, the church is failing, the church is anemic, the churches are closing. Look, uh, the church in the West is struggling, and it has been for 15 or 20 years. Uh, the church globally is, is expanding like a, a brush fire. And, uh, and even here, it's not what you might think. So tomorrow's paper is going to contain reports about sporting events this weekend, and what movies people want to see. <laughs> okay, the reality is there are tens of millions more people in church this weekend than are at sporting events and movies, right? So the church is stronger than you might think. And again, globally, it is going in every direction. So uh, there are, I heard somebody say in, in a discussion like this, I heard somebody say, you know, you're trying to write off the church. You realize I can take you to hundreds of thousands of places that don't have a Starbucks, don't have a McDonald's, don't have a Walmart, don't have anything, but they got a church. And, and the church is bringing education and it's bringing medical care and it's bringing things moving forward. And so there's a lot of reasons for us to be a little bit more uh, bullish about the church. It is doing better than we think. My decision to be a Christian pivots around Jesus, right? I'm persuaded there's no one like him. I'm persuaded he is who he claimed to be. I look at his teaching. I look at his example. I look at his death. Uh, and I just go, wow, there's nobody, there's nobody like Jesus. So I am a Christ follower because of Jesus. But the church, I also find to be uh, a source of hope and inspiration. As many things as it does wrong. Right? I do find the church to be a source of hope and inspiration. And by the way, uh, one of the things that Jesus doesn't get credit for is the church. Uh, we tend to think Jesus is good, 
but I don't hear people think that he's smart. Okay, so I just want to point out, right, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and whoever, whatever entrepreneur you want to look at and say, look at what they started. Look at what Jesus started. Oh, my goodness. With a handful of people who were not that impressive, he says in this passage in Matthew 16, upon you, I'm going to build my church. And, and it will prevail. All right? It will go in every direction. It will defeat evil. And the church today is the, is the oldest, the largest, the most global, the most ethnically diverse organization in the world. Right? And Jesus started it with, again, not a lot of talent. He started it. And so uh, I, am, I am a Christ follower because of Jesus, but I am also impressed by the church. So why am I telling you all this? Well, in two weeks, we start this series, our fall series, Discover Life with God. And that's the, it's like fall series we've done in the past, right? We say, okay, time to jump in. We've got daily devotions, the time to the sermons. We've got video support. We're, we're regrouping small groups. Every, we've got to open small groups at all three campuses. We want everybody to jump in. So that's happening in two weeks. And uh, it'll go for five weeks. It ties in. We have Luis Palau coming to, to do the closing message. And we sort of had to adjust our schedule because we had the opportunity to have Dr. Palau here. But what that meant is that I ended up with two weeks between Serve Your City and the start of this campaign. And, I, you know, it took me five years to get through the Gospel of Luke. So two weeks is not much time to do much. And I thought, what am I going to do during those two weeks? And I thought, well... Um, I'm impressed by the church, given what's going on in culture, given the, the tension, given the, given the racial tension, given the, the terror. Uh, I think that the best thing I can do is to try and build up the church. I mean, I really believe, like, the most patriotic thing I can do is to build up the church. The most hopeful thing that I can do is to build up the church. And so uh, I, I sort of got into this because we're, we're moving into this um, campaign. I want to remind you why you should be a part of it, uh, because of what's going on in culture, and also because we have uh, been dribbling out over the last several months, the annual meeting and in my letters and other things, a new mission and vision statement. Right, so after 15 years, we have tweaked this a little bit. We used to talk about proclaiming the good news and engaging in good works and trying to touch and transform the 10 miles around our steeple. That all worked, and we're not changing it much, but we're now saying we want, uh, we want to fuel a movement that is going to reach people and renew communities. Right? We want to help people discover life with God. And we want to not just do it, we want to help fuel a movement that is going to do this that is going to reach people with the good news of, the, of Christ and renew communities. It's going to bring life and hope. And, and we have some ag- aggressive goals. Between now and the end of 2020, we want to baptize 500 people. We want, want 100,000 volunteer hours. So these are not, not hours internally, uh, not working with Lighthouse and working with kids and volunteering as an elder or a deacon or on the worship team or all those things. That's great. These are volunteer hours directed outside the doors of the church to love and care for people who are, who are in need of love and care. We want 100,000 hours, and we want to do all of this through the church. All right, so we want, to, we want to actually start 10 new communities of grace, hope, and love based on the life and teaching of Jesus. We want six of these to be overseas. 
So we got, we've been talking to our global mission partners in, in Istanbul and in Ghana and in, in various parts of India. We want to start churches. And uh, we want to we expand our footprint here in terms of additional campuses. So it's all going through the front door of the church. So I want us to rethink church. You have an idea of what the church is when somebody says church. It likely falls into one of four. When some people use the word church, they think, honestly, principally, of a building. Go three blocks and turn left at the church. Some people use the word church to refer to a service like this. Hey, we missed you at church this weekend. Some people use the word to refer to some sort of entity, right? It's a a legal entity that has budgets and programs. And how is the church doing? Other people use the word church to refer to a community. So when, when our marriage was struggling, the church came alongside us and cared for us. So the word gets used in a variety of different ways. When you add in the theologians and what they say, then it gets a little bit more complicated. Now you get distinctions between the the church visible and the church invisible, or the local church and the global church and the universal church, or you hear about the, the church militant and the church latent. There's all these different ideas. And then when pastors jump in and writers jump in, you get a whole bunch of additional definitions for the church. When you turn to the New Testament, to sort of get the definitive definition for a church, <laughs> you relatively quickly realize there is no definition for a church. So the first time the word gets used is in that Matthew 16 passage where Jesus says to the disciples, who do people say that I am? Oh, some say, you know, Elijah, some say John the Baptist. Who do you say I am? You are the Christ, right? You are the Messiah, and then and, and Peter, or Jesus at that point says, Peter, blessed are you. That answer is so spot on. I know you didn't come up with it, right? That, that was supernaturally given to you by, by, by God the Father. And, and I am going to build upon that declaration, upon you, that I'm going to build my church. And he uses a word, ecclesia, it's a Greek word. First time that it's used, it was relatively uh, rarely used at the time that Jesus used it. it. He sort of goes back into the Greek philosophers. He pulls out, it's, it's a political term as close as anything. It refers to an assembly of some sort, to a gathering of people who are organized around some ideas. And so he repositions this term and says, I'm going to build, right? I'm going to gather people around this mission that God has to redeem and restore everything. I'm going to build my church. And then as we continue through the New Testament, we see that um, there's a little bit more description that comes in. In the book of Acts, we see that the church... Uh, there's four things that, that become sort of the minimum requirements for a church to be a church. There's, there's gathering around the apostles' teaching, which we would recognize as the, the New Testament, the Bible in, in its entirety. There's teaching, preaching. There's prayer. There's fellowship, right, because we can't do this alone. We're in this together. And then additionally, uh, there's the breaking of bread, so the sacraments, Holy Communion. These are, these are the four things that have to be in place. And, and, and as we go through the rest of the New Testament, we can add some things. The church is made up of people who are Christ followers. We're going to meet on, on a regular basis. They're going to meet around the teaching. They're going to meet around prayer, worship, fellowship, 
and the sacraments. So we get some idea of what the church is supposed to be. But as we read through the rest of the, of the, uh, the Bible, we don't get any crisp clarity about what it's supposed to look like. Instead, what we get are a handful of metaphors, a handful of descriptions that come at this movement of God from a variety of different perspectives. Some, some of these we get in the Bible. So, for instance, one of the most prominent would be that it's the body of Christ. Another one would be that it's the family of God. So think for just for a second about the family of God. Uh, family is, uh, a family is something that you don't really earn your status in, right? We're told in John 1 that as many as received Jesus to them, he, had, he gives the right to become children of God. We get adopted into the family of God on the basis of the work of Jesus. And it's not, a, families are not uh, clubs that you have to pay initiation fees to get into, right? You just, you end up in a family. And uh, that's part of what makes them different. I, one of the cartoons I liked 20 years ago was a cartoon called Kudzu. So kudzu is this weed that grows in the South, and it was overrunning everything. And this was a cartoon sort of making fun of the South. And it was about the, the, the primary character was this hapless 15-year-old boy. And um, he was called Kudzu. And Kudzu, uh, you know, he, he couldn't get a date and he couldn't figure out life and all these things. And so one of the side set of characters was this family that was run by a dad who was the CEO of a company. Big, you know, stereotypical, greedy, capitalist, corporate baron, right? And he had... Two kids. He had a daughter who was sort of the prima donna that, that Kudzu really liked, but she wouldn't give him the time of day. And, and she was very much, very much sort of in the same mindset as her father. And then there's this son, there's this boy, he's maybe 10 or 12. And he's sort of thoughtful and he's, he's caring and compassionate. And so one of the ongoing storylines is that the father keeps trying to fire the son. He says, you know, you just don't fit. Uh, sorry, it didn't work out, but we're going to have to let you go. And, uh, and the son keeps going, Dad, you can't do that. You can't fire me from the family. This isn't a company. It's a family, right? And that's one of the distinctions of a family. Robert Frost says a family is those people who, if you have to go to them, they have to take you in, right? That, that's family. It, it, it's a, it's a grace-based as opposed to a merit-based organization. So we are the family of God, the body of Christ. There's a little bit of this language in 1 Corinthians 12 where Paul talks about there's different parts of the body, an ear, an eye, a nose, you know, and you, you can't say, the knee can't say, oh, I want to be an eye, that, that there's different parts that all work together. But I think it's more interesting to think about the body of Christ in the way it gets uh, developed by Paul. So in uh, in Acts chapter 9, we have Paul's conversion. He's Saul at this point. He's, he's trying to persecute Christians. He's trying to kill Christians. He's on the road to Damascus to arrest Christians when Christ notably meets with him, right? And the skies part and the blinding light and Paul falls down and he hears a voice from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul, whose name will later be changed to Paul, Paul says, well, who are you? 
Right? And he says, I am Jesus who you're persecuting. And Paul's like, how am I persecuting you? Right? But the answer is, Jesus so identifies with his followers that to the extent that they suffer, he suffers. To the extent that something is done against them, it's done against Jesus, right? Being part of the church is to be part of this identity with Jesus. And we get that even more in Revelation chapter 21. So there we hear that the church is actually the bride of Christ. So John, the Apostle John, writing about at the end, this is, you know, this is the second to last chapter in the Bible. He's talking about the future where everything's working. And he says, uh, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no more sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Okay, this is the church. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned. For the Lamb of God, Jesus. So, again, a metaphor for the church, for us. Jesus not only creates us, John 1, he not only dies in our place, he then marries us. Right? I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot to suggest that Jesus is very committed to the church. Now, there are other analogies and metaphors in, in Scripture, but, but, but I'm more drawn to some that I find sort of in common everyday discussions. In Philip Yancey's book, uh, The Church, Why Bother? He says, um, the church to me is like a local bar. And I'm drawn to that because I remember back in the 80s, Watching the TV show Cheers. You know, it was a comedy. Sam Malone and Cliff Clavin and Fraser Crane and Norm. I mean, this is sort of this, you know, group of dysfunctional people in a bar. But what I loved about Cheers was the opening song, right? Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came. You want to go where people know our troubles are all the same. You want to go where everybody knows your name. And it was convicting to hear, but it's like, yes, that's what we're after, right? A place where people admit, you got troubles, I got troubles. A place where people know you and they care for you and they're there for you and they know all about your crazy mom and they know all about, you know, your high school kid that's driving you batty and they know about your challenges in your marriage. They know all that, right? That's what, that's what was happening in Cheers. And they were oddly caring for each other. So I think a local bar is an interesting metaphor. Correspondingly, I think AA meetings, sort of the opposite side, there's a lot about AA that seems to me is sort of gets the... You know, I, I'm a sinner. You know, I'll lead with my, my brokenness. We're going to be real. We're going to be raw. There's um, a book out that I read this summer called uh, The Field Hospital. And it picks up on this idea. I did not know this, but apparently a couple years ago, when asked, Pope Francis said that his favorite metaphor for the church was a field hospital. So it's a place of healing. But it's not just a place where broken people go to be cared for. It's actually a, a, a field hospital. So it's in harm's way, right? It's people going to where people are broken and hurting in order to provide care. Uh, another 
image, the one that I have, have sort of gravitated to most in the last 10 years is that the church uh, is an aircraft carrier. So for a while in the 80s, there were some people talking about the church as a battleship, sort of culture war language. And then, and then there was people saying, church isn't a battleship, it's a cruise ship. It's got lots of people on it that just want to be catered to and eat more food than they need. And, you know, they're not doing anything. Uh, but I think it's not a battleship and it's not a cruise ship. It's an aircraft carrier. And the thing about an aircraft carrier is that the aircraft carrier's purpose is to be a place for people on a mission, right, pilots, to land, to refuel, to be recharged, to, to rest, to get, to get fed, uh, to get a new assignment, and to be launched back out to serve again. So I, I did it yesterday. I went, I went on YouTube. I Googled uh, Top Gun, first four minutes. There's no dialogue. You just watch in the first four minutes as this aircraft carrier, as they launch these jets. And you think, yes, <laughs> there's a sense in which that is the church, right? We are launching people out on their mission. And so we come, we gather together for rest and for encouragement and for new instructions and for an opportunity to sort of figure out what's going on and then to be launched back again to the, to the places that we serve. The church is not this building. The church is us. The church meets together, uh, weekend services, and then it scatters, right? We scattered last Sunday on Sunday morning. But the fact is the church scatters every Sunday morning. Every Sunday afternoon, the church is all over. We all have assignments, opportunities. We are the church, and we are to be about God's mission. Now, there are more metaphors, but it's worth pausing to say as I close, we don't get any of them right. The church is always better in theory than it is in practice. (laughs) We're always more broken. We're always more selfish than, than we would like to be. And so we fail in all of these metaphors, But uh, I hope that this fall we can find a new gear. My hope, our prayer, we've been working towards the end that the church steps up to be the church. It's clearly desperately needed for people to follow Jesus' example of putting the needs of others ahead of their own needs and going out and loving and serving and bringing hope and, and, and renewing Communities, reaching people and renewing communities and doing it in a way that it grows, right? We want these 10 new communities of grace, hope, and love to be multiplying communities of grace, hope, and love. That's God's plan. God has a mission of loving and redeeming people and things, and that mission has a church. We are the church. And so I hope we rethink our assignment this fall, I hope that you will go all in with, uh, with us as we move down that path. Let me pray for us. Lord God, uh, we pause to ask for your kingdom to come, to ask for your will to be done, to ask for a world that works, a world of hope and health, uh, a world of grace. We confess that we have not lived that way. We confess that in so many different ways the church has failed to live up to her calling. We have not been the beautiful bride that you deserve. We confess that. But we want to do better. And so guide and direct us to that end. Uh, May your church 
be a vehicle that you can use to fulfill your loving, gracious mission here. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.